My guest is Richard Gowan. Richard Gowan is a UN Director at the International Crisis Group based in New York. Welcome to the podcast, Richard. Thank you very much for having me on. Well, I was keen to have you on the podcast because we're coming up very soon to the United Nations General Assembly, UNGA, to the aficionados. But before we delve into the go into the weeds of that, next week's UNGA, I want you to tell me a bit about what the International Crisis Group is and what your role as UN Director within the ICG is. So Crisis Group is a global conflict prevention organization. I have colleagues who work in pretty tough places like Afghanistan and Venezuela, tracking crises and tracking humanitarian situations. And they do this amazing reporting that gives us a real sense of what is going on on the ground in conflict zones. Uh, my job is uh, rather cushier. Um, <laughs> I uh, I live in Brooklyn and I take the subway to the UN and I spend my time talking to UN officials and diplomats about what the UN could do better to deal with the problems of Lebanon, the problems of Yemen, uh, whatever is on the international agenda. Right. So not quite the same thing as David Miliband's International Rescue Committee, also based in New York. Uh, people do confuse <laughs> us, but IRC is more focused on pure humanitarian work, right? whereas Crisis Group is more focused on you know, what are the Taliban thinking um, or what are the Houthis thinking in Yemen? More that sort of aspect of conflict. But, you know, we're all we're all friends. We're all in the same bubble. Right. Very good. All right, then. So it's it's Ungar time. It seems to come around every year quite quickly. And uh, I think most people listen to the podcast and, and me as a host will know what the United Nations is. But the General Assembly, as I say, comes around every year and it lasts roughly a week, as I understand it. And people don't really know what goes on. They may be watching some obscure cable channel on TV. They'll see some head of government giving a speech in front of the famous sign of the United Nations, but uh, the logo there. But give me a sense of, before we talk about next week's UNGA, why the General Assembly is, has, what role it has, what relevance it has, and to what extent should people like me pay more attention to it? Well, the General Assembly works at two levels. On the one hand, you have world leaders and foreign ministers coming to New York and giving pro forma speeches uh, from the UN podium. And as you say, that's what tends to get into the news. The US president is always one of the first speakers. He sets the tone for the whole event. And then, you know, a whole array of international politicos come and say their piece. Frankly, a lot of that is quite boring. And even UN insiders like me will listen to Biden, but after a bit, our attention drifts. Right. What's, what's actually probably more important is that this is an amazing opportunity for a lot of backroom diplomacy. And mm -hmm. so in the UN compound, but also in missions all around the east side of Manhattan, uh, you have you know, very senior political figures getting together for bilateral discussions of the world's problems. And it is incredibly intense. Uh, you, know, you have ministers going from meeting to meeting to meeting. And if you're in the UN building while this is going on, you will see really senior people, you know, the sort of dominant figures in their national news media, just wandering around looking a bit shell-shocked because right. the intensity of all this diplomatic activity really is unprecedented. Now, it tailed off during COVID. In 2020, there was no in-person meeting at all. 
the last couple of years, it's been a bit smaller than usual, but now it's back and it's going to be a very, very big, uh, very intense week uh, of diplomacy. Right. Well, this intense week of diplomacy, can you give me a flavour of what the main agenda items for next week's UNGA are? I think the theme for this year was primarily meant to be about international development. A lot of leaders from what we now call the global south, you know, Asia, Africa, Latin America, have really been emphasizing that they are facing serious economic headwinds. A lot of countries are struggling with big debt burdens. And there was a push from the global south to have this general assembly to be about what can we do to ease these economic pressures? Can we reform the World Bank? Can we reform development aid to help poor countries get back on their feet? But there is a wrinkle to this, and the wrinkle is that President Zelensky from Ukraine is coming to New York. He wasn't able to come last year for security reasons, uh, but he is coming. He is going to give a speech on the first day of the General Assembly. He may attend a Security Council session on Ukraine. And by definition, Zelensky is going to absorb 90% of the media attention around this circus. And so Ukraine will sort of come right back and probably to a degree eclipse the development agenda. Do you have a pretty good idea what he seeks to achieve by coming in person, President Zelensky? I think that for Zelensky, this is a good opportunity to get some time lobbying primarily non-Western leaders uh, and asking them to support Ukraine. I mean, Zelensky has now, he's been to the G7 summit, he's been to the NATO summit, He's had a lot of face time with European leaders in particular. But the Ukrainians have always worried that you know, Russia is still winning hearts and minds in a lot of the developing world, especially in Africa. Right. And so I think Zelensky's main message is going to be, you know, you should support us. Russia is undercutting food security, for example, by uh, exiting the Black Sea grain deal. And so I think Zelensky's main focus is going to be on non-Western leaders. And Vladimir Putin is not going to be here. The Russian foreign minister, Lavrov, is representing Russia. But with with Putin out of the way, Zelensky has a pretty free run to do this lobbying work with with the global south. And these non-Western states, uh, many are are formally non-aligned. Is that correct? Uh, Very few are, relatively speaking, formally pro-Putin, pro-Russia. Very few are explicitly pro-Russia. You know, obviously, North Korea, Syria, Belarus. There are a handful of openly pro-Putin states. But the headache for Ukraine is that there are quite a lot of countries that are sympathetic to Ukraine at one level, but still argue that Zelensky should be looking for early peace talks. I mean, this is something we've heard from... Mm. Lula, the Brazilian president, it's something we've heard from South Africa, from Indonesia. And I think this worries the Ukrainians that you know, a large part of the UN membership believes that Ukraine should essentially trade land for peace. And probably one of the, the messages that Zelensky will be trying to get across is that that just is not a feasible option right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we don't have a serious negotiating partner with Russia. And I think he'll be trying to dispel some of 
the illusions about the possibilities of diplomacy that are you know quite widespread in in the UN membership. If you say he's also possibly going to be attending the following day the UN's uh, Security Council, of course, China and Russia are permanent members of that Security Council. Would they be in the room while he addresses them? So we're not sure if it's going to be Zelensky who's in the Security Council or the Ukrainian Foreign Minister Kaleba. Right. Uh, this is a source of great speculation. And someone will be there representing Russia right. uh, when when the Ukrainians speak. However, last year there was a debate about Ukraine and the Security Council again during the high-level week. Lavrov was present. But what Lavrov did was he came into the council, he gave his own speech, and then he left again. He he didn't sit around to be attacked by the the US or or mm. the Brits. And I suspect that it will be the same this year that you know, Lavrov will come in, he'll give a defense of the Russian position, but he will deliberately not listen to what Ukraine has to say. And whoever is representing Ukraine will probably walk out when, when Lavrov speaks. So you won't have this sort of electric moment where they're right. talking at one another. Right. Well, as a, as a seasoned UN watcher, Richard, um, is there a savviness to Zelensky's uh, decision to come in person to New York next week? Or could, could it all end in tears? Uh, are we all, everybody trying to manage expectations? What do you think the outcome from a Ukrainian point uh, would be? I think the one one way it could end in tears is if Zelensky gives a speech, whether in the General Assembly or in the Security Council, in which he simply dismisses any possibility of ever speaking diplomatically to the Russians. And then other leaders, you know, like President Lula from Brazil, come out and say, what we're hearing is that Zelensky is an obstacle to peace. Right, you know, and it's it's Zelensky and NATO who are really keeping this war going, and that is a line that we sometimes heard from Brasilia and right. from South Africa. But I, you know, I think Zelensky will be ca- canny. I think that if he leans into the fact that Russia has you know, grossly violated the UN Charter, which is something that pretty much all UN members acknowledge, hmm. if he emphasizes that. You know, poor countries are not going to get out of their economic uh, problems unless you have more stable food and energy markets. And ending the war in Ukraine, you know, on positive terms would help with that. If if he gets those messages across, I think it will be fine. And I think that you know he does still have a lot of star power, and a lot of a lot of leaders will probably want that photo opportunity with him. Uh, and you know that that will that will be good for the Ukrainians both in real world politics, but also you know, on social media and so forth. But you're saying or some uh, participants next week are keen to that that this star power that you refer to, President Zelensky, does not in in effect take suck all the air out of the room, and that some time and uh, attention and uh, bandwidth, as they say, the jargon can be devoted to discussing broader development issues, which is a kind of from an outside, ignorant perspective like mine, the kind of the, the bread and butter, the meat and potatoes, whatever the food analogy is of the United Nations. Yes, it is very important that you know Western participants in particular don't let Zelensky's presence totally distract them from the fact that this 
this general assembly was meant to be focused on on development right. and back in 2015 the un agreed you know all the members agreed this very ambitious set of uh, goals for development the sustainable development goals the famous uh, sdgs the famous sdgs you know ending poverty right it's a it's, it's it was always an ambitious agenda the problem is that after the economic shocks associated with covid and also the shocks associated with russia's war on ukraine it is blindingly obvious that we are not going to eradicate poverty by 2030 which was the original um start date and actually a lot of countries in the developing world are seeing their economic conditions getting considerably worse and so we're halfway between 2015 and 2030 there's a big summit which is a stock taking it's meant to be about getting back on track with all these development efforts it, it is hugely important that you know european leaders the eu leaders who are who are coming to new york in force um and joe biden demonstrate that they they care about these issues too and that they are listening to the problems of africa and asia as, as well as the problems of ukraine right there is uh maybe every year the same you'll tell me but put me right in a second uh quite a strong european union representation next week in new york uh three presidents of the main institutions the high representative for foreign security policies six commissioners um, what are, what are they all going to be doing next week apart from talking to people? I go to my first question: Is this a typical European Union representation, or is it more high power this year? And what does this delegation, in your view, would they hope to achieve? I think at least over the last ten years or so, as I recall, there's always been a pretty strong EU delegation coming from Brussels to New York, and it's you know it's what they say in sports it's the flood the flood the zone tactics you know you you um you just have so many senior eu officials here that they can be at every event um you know they can fan out and meet leaders from all different parts of the world I, the current commission and you know von der leyen and borrell have invested quite a lot in the idea of the eu being a natural partner with yeah, the but- un as a kind of geopolitical player. <laughs> yeah, but also, also a sort of instinctive multilateral right. block. And there have been, you know, there's sort of been formal dialogues in recent years between von der Leyen's team and the, the team of Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General. So the EU is investing really heavily in, in the UN. What are they talking about? The number of mini summits that the EU is sponsoring is very wide ranging. The EU is convening an event on the crisis in Sudan with Arab states. I think there's a meeting on child soldiers. Uh, there's a big meeting on the global gateway and right. the digital economy and how that can contribute to getting development back on track. Uh, no, there's you know, the, the, the EU is all over the place. I mean, I think this is basically a very positive form of engagement. It is worth saying that EU officials also get very frustrated because they point out that the bloc is a huge a huge player in terms of development aid and you know continues to be a big player despite the financial strains associated with ukraine but they know that in new york you know china is gaining leverage china's economic uh, strength is translating into more influence at the un and so i think there is there's also a desire on the part of the eu to sort of come and say you know we are the real 
we're the real players in international development. Don't be don't be distracted by by what the Chinese are trying to do with the Belt and Road and other initiatives. Am I right in assuming that these sort of mini summits, you call them, obviously they're not going to duplicate what's on the plenary General Assembly agenda. Are they? Do they have different formats? Are invitation only? Some are public, some are private, some are big, some are small. I'm trying to get a picture in my mind, a bit like a political party annual conference where you have the, the main debates in the chamber, the speeches and all around the, the complex, all sorts of little meetings taking place in different formats. It is it is quite like a party conference, actually, in that sense. Um, and everyone has to have their their special event. I, I mean, these sort of events fall into two categories. A, a lot of them are very much for public consumption. A lot of them are about public diplomacy. And so, you know, when the EU convenes a big meeting with developing countries on the global gateway and digitalization, I, I suspect that will be a public event. And they'll be trying to get development experts to to watch it and comment. It's about shaping narratives about what the EU is doing in the world. But you do also have closed meetings, closed meetings at the ministerial level, especially when it comes to talking about individual crises. Uh, sometimes those meetings are probably more substantive, but they're less transparent because, again, you take the opportunity that the fact that everyone is in New York to try and get decision makers together to talk about knotty problems uh, in international security. So the, the meetings vary in size and, and they vary in the level of publicity. How, how permeable is the UN structure, especially during uh, Ungar week, to to the outside world? I mean, obviously the corporate world uh, wants to make its presence felt. Other stakeholders from civil society is, as again, going back to your long experience as a uh, UN observer, and commentator, as years go by, does the UN more and more or less open more and more open its doors to these other players, or is it still a question of these other groups uh, sort of turning up during the same week by pure coincidence and kind of in, inviting themselves to events or creating parallel events just to kind of take advantage of the, the the general presence of all these important people in the same place at one time? So during the General Assembly week, I mean, just physically, the the UN compound on the east side of Manhattan is is locked down. And actually, sort of the First Avenue and the streets around the UN are barricaded. And unless you have the necessary special passes, you you can't get into the main UN building. In normal times, I know I can walk in and out of the UN, purchase a really disgusting coffee anytime I like. Um, <laughs> but you know, next week. Even to get into the UN building, I will need extra passes and extra permissions. But what has happened is that outside actors, you know, sometimes sometimes UN member states, but also big corporations like Microsoft and big foundations like Ford Foundation, mm. you know, they, they host big side events sort of in the U the wider UN zone. Right. And so there's a, there is a lot of interplay uh between people who are there for the formal UN meetings and this sort of wider wider universe of international players. And I think it's probably true to say that over time, real-world decision-making is shifting to other forums, the G20, the G7, maybe the BRICS. And so the, the General Assembly is probably becoming a bit less important in terms of some of the really hard diplomacy about global affairs although I think it is still a very important platform. 
But what is offsetting that is that there's more and more of these public events. I mean, it's more and more an opportunity for states and corporations and foundations to come together and, and hold public discussions. And, and the number of public discussions seems to just go up every year. And is that seen in broad terms as a as maybe a strength and su- support for the main core function of the UN, or is it uh, General Assembly, or is it seen as maybe dissipating people's and distracting people's attention? I mean, it exhausts diplomats. I mean, dip- <laughs> you know, the, the diplomatic community deep down loathe this week because, of course, it's when you get attention, but also you're you're trying to move six ministers or six commissioners between thirty events and. Then there's a traffic jam on Second Avenue and your minister is stuck in a car and getting cross. Right. Um, so, I mean, I think in a way it is distracting. I think that it's very, it is very hard to really keep a focus on a few big issues during the UN week because so many issues are on the table. Although, again, I think Zelensky, to some extent, will cut through all of that this this year. Um, on the other hand, it's a reminder of why the UN is... yeah. It's useful. I mean, you know, it is a gathering place where an extraordinary number of actors of different types can get together, and especially leaders of small states, you know, small island states who are sort of facing drowning thanks to climate change. You know, they can get up on stage and they can speak to a global audience in a way that they they cannot really do anywhere else. So I think it does still have some some value for the world. Right. Okay. Well, the final question then, just to press you a bit more on this broad issue of the the effectiveness of uh, the United Nations General Assembly in particular. Let's not talk about the UN, maybe as an institution. And I'm going to quote back at you uh, uh, some words in the most recent blog you've written for International Crisis Group website, which I strongly recommend to people listening to this podcast. The quote is as follows from Richard Gowan. Important as all this UN business feels in the moment, much of it is a sort of diplomatic froth that bubbles up around General Assembly, <laughs> every General Assembly session, and recedes just as quickly as leaders depart New York and return home. At a recent event on the work of the General Assembly, one ambassador ruefully noted that there are rarely any metrics to test whether the various declarations the body generates have real-world impact. Debates that seem urgent at the UN can quickly fizzle. Do you st- still st- those words are written not so long ago? Do you still stand by them, or you're just using the quote of the, di- the diplomat to hide your own feelings? Uh, I, I think I wrote those words a week ago, um, <laughs> and they sound a bit more forceful when you read them out than I, I thought they were when I wrote them down. Um, no, look, I think I think there is a lot of busy work around the UN General Assembly. I think there are a lot of events for the sake of holding events. I mean, actually. As the UN director for an NGO, we could be hosting lots of events, but I, I try and limit the number of events we do and try and ensure that Comfortero, our president who comes to New York, you know, only participates in the events that we think will have impact. Right. So, yeah, there's a lot of fraud. But I think what tends to come out of all this stuff put together is that you you do get a sense of what the direction for diplomacy for the next year on issues like international development will be. You get a sense of you know where where is a consensus emerging. One big question for the UN right now is: is there an international consensus emerging on how we govern the internet and how we govern right. new technologies like artificial intelligence? That's not going to be decided in New York next week. But if you listen closely, if you listen to the right meetings, you can see where there is space for international cooperation in the digital realm or or around AI. 
or where there are there are big problems. So you can still still learn learn quite a lot if you have a lot of patience and a lot of energy <laughs> for this <laughs> for this circus. Well, so not to exhaust you further, we have to end it there, Richard Gowan. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. Thanks, Paul.